right, uh, mics are set up, everything's here. I think I'm just about ready. Hey. Hey, Greg, What what's up? You're in my chair. But I I just set it up here. Nope. I, Look at the beard. My beard's longer. Yeah. You, you know the rules. We go by dwarven rules here. All right, I'll move. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., back after a little bit of a break, and joining me today is Jacob. Hello! Who did not take a break. He's an absolute workhorse. (laughs) Um, Today, we are going to be reviewing Treasure Mountain, which is long overdue, um, but, you know, we're getting around to him better late than never. And in the meantime, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, so we actually just got finished playing a game of Edge of Darkness. Mm-hmm. So I talked about it on the podcast last week. I was really excited about the game. I was like, I will play a solo game. And this is one of the first solo games that I've probably ever played in terms of solo board games. Much more Greg's wheelhouse there. It's true. So I sat down, I played it, and I was like, I really need to see how this plays with another person. Uh, yeah. Because I wasn't very satisfied with the Automa. You were not. You were uh, uh, pretty dissatisfied with the Automa, in fact. Yeah. I think I could see how, after having played it between the two of us, I could see how an Atama wouldn't quite fit. The thing is that a lot of my problems with the Atama were not solved with playing it with a person. Oh, interesting. So I actually think the Atama does give a pretty good approximation of what it would be like to play a two-player game. Okay. And so my really my reservations are even larger now. So. Right. Interesting. I, for my own sake, I enjoyed it well enough. I think, I think it's interesting, you know, so it's, it's a, it's not quite a deck builder because you're not building your own deck, but you are building a communal deck that everybody gets to use, which Mm -hmm. introduces some interesting, what I would call tactical elements. Like I feel like a lot of times deck builders tend to be mostly strategic. You know, you're, you're thinking about overall, what's the composition of my deck. And then on any given turn, that's just a statistical reflection of how well you've built your deck. Whereas with this, because you and your opponent or opponents are building the same deck, mm-hmm. you kind of have to be able to respond a little bit more quickly. You don't have total control. And the combination of that with the agent system, where you can place agents onto locations and then remove them using like a different thing than you use to put them there, but on a subsequent turn, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. is sort of the iterative nature of it and the fact that it kind of builds up over a number of turns and then you have a, a big execution turn yeah i think does lead to some interesting gameplay particularly for this format i think it's a very interesting gameplay in general i think that the way the game works has some very fun ideas but i think that that's also one of the reasons that it's falling flat for me because they are such interesting ideas but it doesn't seem to almost take advantage of a lot of them like i was hoping that with having another player there would be a lot more of the playing with the cards and like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to use this card of theirs because it's really useful for me or I'm going to use this other thing to clog up their deck or their thing like that. But it almost felt like we were playing two solo games and the only thing that really mattered was the fact that we sometimes had cards taken from us that we wanted because you you drafted before me. Mm -hmm. I do actually think, thinking back on it, I think there was a turn or two where we put cards in the discard pile that were supposed to have gone into each other's guild halls i don't think so i think that we were pretty good at that i think i well maybe not you i think i did that at least once or twice Mm. which may have impacted the game slightly but 
obviously not, you know, yeah. I don't think it would have made a huge difference. But yeah. I mean, it was a very close game in the end. It was. I mean, we were separated by, depending on how you count it. Yeah. <laughs> Not more than two and a quarter points. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, for a game where the final score was in the high 50s, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. You yeah, know. I think it was pretty balanced. I just thought that it was boring. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. It's just like, I wasn't enjoying it. Like, I thought that a lot of the mechanics were interesting, but then, like, you know, it was just like, oh, okay, are we going to get attacked this round? Uh, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, it's mm-hmm. going to happen. Like, I managed to defend this time or I didn't get to defend this time or you got attacked like however many times in a row at the beginning. And like, it was, it was just like, okay, things are happening. Let's see. Can I do this? Maybe if I finagle this, this and this, and then possibly do that. Mm-hmm. Sure. But it's, it's like, we never interacted on, on the board. We never interacted anywhere else. It just felt like we were running in parallel Hmm. to each other without much of a anything (laughs) we're just like both like doing some stuff and you know i did my thing you did your thing but it's not like we were competing for anything i guess i could see that interesting i do think i mean i'd I'd be interested probably in seeing how it plays with four i would be very interested Um, to see And, and the other thing i will say is that the second game that i played had very similar locations out as the first game that i played Gotcha. And I think that, that those locations really, really impact the gameplay. Very much so, yeah. So I'd really like to see how it plays with some of the other combinations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The locations, I think, here are key. And I don't think that they made an interesting game for the first scenario. In reading sort of the, the rationale for this first scenario, I think they did what they set out to do, which was that all the cards were relatively straightforward, mm-hmm. you know. The the most complicated I think we ever got was like, on one turn place agents here. On a subsequent turn remove agents here to gain a bonus. Yeah. Everything else was you know really straightforward, and I think that's fine for a first game. But I do agree with you that it was lacking. There was only one way to train new agents. There was only one way to claim cards. There was only one way to hunt threats. Mm-hmm. Any of which could have been made more accessible. So actually, honestly, what I would want to do, because there's sort of like there's the scenario book, but Mm -hmm. in the back of the scenario book, I was noticing there's also stuff that's more similar to like the conclaves or the sample boards. Mm -hmm. Which is, I used one of those. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, that's what you were referencing. I thought you were just referencing like a later scenario. No, no, no. I I Um, used one of the like, those like just set combos. Yeah. So I'd be interested in in playing with one of those. It was maybe a little bit more like hunting and combat strength. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to see that because that was the strategy that I went for, but it never really got like spectacularly powerful. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see what could happen with some location support there. But yeah, I think it's probably worth at least one other game before I like finalize my judgment on it. Makes but sense. It's at least intriguing. I agree. I agree. Besides that, what have we been playing? I've been playing, I introduced Shipwreck Arcana mm-hmm. to a couple of people. They love it. One of them went out and bought it immediately, like literally <laughs> yep. two days later. So that's really gratifying. I mean, it's great. You know, it's just a nice, fun little logic puzzle-y yeah. type game. Plays really quick. Isn't quite as onerous on the clue giver as something like Mysterium. And, I, you know, it's just it's just a lot of fun. Plus, the artwork is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah I think yeah. that was a big selling point, actually, for the, the couple of people that I taught, was that the, the art looks really fantastic. So Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. And yeah, it's a game that I've wanted to bring to the table, but I haven't had the chance to yet. I actually got to get some other friends into another small game mm-hmm. tofu kingdom ah yep love so tofu kingdom i played it with some co-workers and they were like lukewarm on it until i 
read the story. <laughs> and then they were just like, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and there, there were actually a few people who were, um, they'd played it before, but they were getting a little bit confused as to why oh, this person is working with this or why the, you're getting points here and here and here. You read the story and that it gets all explained. Yeah, and now it, you have like, you have the rules in the story and it's so awesome. Yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, the tofu chef really wants the princess to be chosen because he's her best friend and she saved his family and things like that. And yeah. it, it's it's a similar kind of thing where it's like, I'm pretty sure that one of the people actually went out and got the game as well. Nice. That's really awesome. It's always fun when you can share your favorites with people. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And then I also had a chance to sit down actually the other day with Jesse from Quackalope and we played Tapestry. So Ooh. that's the newest Stonemeyer game. Sure. And it's the one that like it's been getting so much hype. Jamie has really perfected the hype machine. So yeah. it's it's pretty great for him, but the game is I think not worth the hype. Like Wingspan was worth the hype. Mhm. Tapestry, I don't think it is. Interesting. I've just played one session, so I won't say for sure. But I think the biggest problem that I had with it was that you were given a civilization. Mm-hmm. And the civilization has a special, like, very unique like, power or something like that. That, like, you know, this, this is the direction. They have a little bit of a story and that kind of stuff where this is the civilization that you're playing. But as much as it has that, everyone scores points in the same way. Mm-hmm. And those are just auxiliary points. That like pretty much if you play the game exactly like everyone else and you also do the things that you are on your civilization, then you'll win. Okay. But if you play just towards what your civilization wants to do, you're not going to get the points. Oh, okay. I think I see what you're talking about. So like, you know, I had the alchemists who they want to push their luck. They want to go up on the different tracks for like different science and, uh, you know, military, all that. And they have a way of doing that. That's just like, you know, you roll this die at the beginning of every era and when you do that, you get to go up and, you know, you don't get the benefits of going up on these, but you get closer to the top. Sure. But the thing is that, like, the only, the way that you get points scored is by placing the buildings that you have on your board onto your city board to unlock scoring conditions. And that is really the only, like, way of getting points that can be done over and over again. Otherwise, they're all one-time points. Oh. So it's just like, so it's the kind of thing that at the end of each era you will score points based on what you have uncovered on your player board, mm-hmm. based on what buildings you've placed. And you do that four times throughout the game. And so that's the place that you can get a lot of points where it's just like when you place all of the buildings of one type, you get a static 10-point bonus whenever you, you do that. So if you rush really quickly through one type of building, mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot of points there. Right. But if you rush to the top of, your, uh, of a track, you don't get anything. Really? Well, but I would assume that there are certain gameplay, like each certain civilizations will have a certain type of gameplay that complements a specific type of building. Sort of, but the, the biggest thing is based on what I've seen in this one game, the best thing to do is just to empty as many of your tracks as possible. Hmm. Just getting to the end of all of your tracks gives you 40 points. Okay. And my score was 136. Okay. And the winner of this game was at... 200 and i think 40 or something like that damn so they lapped me right or they got me by at least 100 yeah and so it was the kind of thing where it's like yeah i played exactly like i played perfectly towards my towards my my civilization Mm -hmm. but i got whooped sure because the game doesn't encourage you to play towards your civilization it encourages you to play 
the game and then have the civilization as an auxiliary part. Sure. That like can give you a few more additional points or something like that. And possibly if it synergizes with the main core gameplay, which is the building of the things on the, on the board, mm-hmm. then you might get a few more. Interesting. So I'm, I'm mm. definitely a little bit disappointed with, with my first gameplay of it, but I'm still willing to sit down for one more try and see how it, it plays. But yeah. Well, yeah, let me know how it goes. Yeah, I know you have it over there on your table, mm-hmm. so maybe we can, maybe we'll play that on a variety one night. Yeah, we'll see. And there you go. That's a look at what we've been playing. Alrighty, now let's dig into Treasure Mountain. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Yeah, sh- yep. All right, that's fine. That's fair. Uh, you're the one who gave me the intro. So um, Treasure Mountain is a game by August Games. We've talked about it on the podcast before when we actually did a preview of it with mm-hmm. both Daniel George and Mac Hillier, the artist, so mm-hmm. the designer and the artist. Um, well, we got the full production copy a while ago, and we've been putting it up, but now it's time to actually talk about it. Because, Yay! Yes. <laughs> um, so it is a game for... Two to four players. If you have the expansion, it goes from one to four players. It is a worker placement game where you're playing dwarves who are trying to impress the dwarven king the most by getting the most money, getting the most gems, building the best mine, and just fulfilling his demands kind of thing. So that's what you're working through to try to impress the king in the very end. Right, exactly. And so like Jacob mentioned, worker placement is the core mechanic here. On any given turn, you're going to be placing your workers. Depending on the player count, you'll have between three and five workers. Mm-hmm. And here's sort of the the twist, is that each of those workers has a number associated with it. And higher numbers mean longer beards, yep. mean more senior dwarves. Mm-hmm. And more senior dwarves can bump younger dwarves. Yep. When a dwarf is bumped, the dwarf that was bumped goes back to its owner. The yep. dwarf that was placed gets to activate an action whatever that action might be and then the dwarf that was bumped gets to be replaced somewhere else on the board following the normal rules which means they can also bump another smaller dwarf so you can kind of end up with these sort of cascades especially as you get later into a round where the available action slots are sort of eaten up Mm -hmm. and so you'll end up with you know my five places on your four places on my three two one and then the one just has to go somewhere that's empty so each of your turns can get increasingly long because everybody's bouncing back and forth and placing their bumped workers yeah when you're placing your bumped workers you're placing them on the different action spaces along the board so the action spaces are made up of two different types you have the individual action spaces which only give you a benefit you place your worker there you get that benefit pretty simple like you, you have in most games. Mm-hmm. The other action spaces are the all-play action spaces. And in these, it's the kind of thing where you will play a dwarf there, and when you do, you get an additional bonus and get to take that action first, but then everyone else in player order will get to take that action. So these are the things that are like the core gameplay concepts. So that includes expanding your mine, mining your gems, presenting your gems to the king and selling them at the gem market. So these are the actions that like, if they weren't all play, you would miss out on a lot. Right. So they really almost have to be in order for the game to be balanced. Right. And some of the types of actions that are not all play, some of the individual spaces are really, really straightforward and really, really powerful. So yeah. there's one space in particular 
And when you go to that space, you just get two coins. Each coin, in addition to being able to, you know, sort of be spent throughout the game on things, is worth two points at the end of the game. So activate a space, get four points is pretty good, but there's a drawback, which is the dragon. Yes. So there is a dragon that inhabits the sort of dwarven territory, mm -hmm. and when you use certain spaces, the dragon track has a chance to move up. You roll a die on a three or higher, you advance the dragon. Your dwarves weren't sneaky enough on awaiting the treasure hoard. Clank. <laughs> TM. But when the dragon track reaches its maximum, a dragon attacks. And so this is a mechanic sort of similar to the way that I've heard Lowlands described, where this builds up and then each person possibly suffers a penalty. So yeah. each person has to roll a die, one to six, add any number of axes that they've acquired, mm -hmm. which can boost your strength, and then the dragon is revealed. And so each player who beat the dragon is fine. Mm -hmm. Each player who didn't beat the dragon loses either half their gems or half their money, depending on what the dragon is. Mm -hmm. And then whoever beat the dragon and also got the highest total value takes the tile, and that's worth points at the end of the game. So there's sort of just this threat of the dragon looming over a lot of these actions. And again, because of the bumping mechanic, it's hard to avoid those actions because those are just going to be some of the only ones left open at yeah. the end of sort of a cycle of placing your workers. Exactly. And all this that you're doing, whether it's uh, gathering the different gems, gathering the coins, selling gems, all that, you are also always keeping your eye on the objectives that the king has set out. So the king will have a certain number of objectives out there, and they could be anything from have five rubies to have three spaces excavated or three dirt piles on your mine and things like that. And these are things that you will be getting, collecting throughout the game. And the nice part here is that you just have to have them. They're a threshold. If you have them, you qualify for that. You can take that card and score those points when you activate that space. And so it's the kind of thing where the timing is quite important because you really have to make sure that, you know, you're getting the most out of this. You, you have to be ready to almost whenever someone else seems to be just about getting ready for uh, Greg has almost enough gems. He's going to mine this round and he's going to have enough gems to fulfill this card here. He's probably going to go there. Let me make sure that I have something that's on the board that will score me points when, when he goes in. Yeah, exactly. And timing is a very big thing throughout the entirety of the game, not just with objectives, but also with uh, basically any all-play space. Yeah. The sort of central conceit of the game is the mine that you're building out. You have mine tiles that are represented mm -hmm. in front of you, your own personal player board, yeah. and those have gems on them. And as you mine them, they will be removed and placed into your personal stockpile, and it is possible for your mines to be empty. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody goes to the mine or, you know, activates the mine action while your mine is empty, you're just going to get basically nothing. Yeah. Whereas you could have taken some actions to ensure that you would have replenished your gems, been ready whenever someone triggered a mine and being able to take full advantage of that. So the, the timing of this is really a, a pretty core aspect of the game and paying attention to uh, what people are doing, what people might do and making sure that you're prepared to capitalize on any action that they take. Exactly. And you do this for a certain number of rounds. So based on the number of players that you have, you will be playing between four and I believe seven rounds. Yes. So at the end of the game, you start the scoring with looking at your tiles that you have in front of you. On the card that shows you the scoring, that's the top thing. And you're looking for sets of tiles of the same gem type. 
So if you have three ruby tiles, you will get five points. If you're able to get all the way up to, I believe, seven or eight, you will get 10 points and so on and so forth. The more you get, the more points they will give you. And this is for all the different types of tiles. So whether it's the gem tiles or the special tiles, which can give you special abilities. Then after you've scored all those, you go to scoring the coins that you have. Each coin is worth two points. So that's pretty simple. However many coins you have, double that, that's how many points you get. Each gem that you have mined is then worth one point. And each gem that you have not yet mined, which is still on your mine tiles, is worth half a point. And you go ahead and put all this together. And all this put together with the objectives that you've scored throughout the game gives you your final score. Whoever has the most wins. Yeah, easy peasy. So that's the base game. There is also an expansion, Caverns of Gondoom, which adds a couple of new mechanics, namely a new type of gem, mana crystals, mm -hmm. which can be used to interact with another new mechanic, spells. Yep. Spells are another all-play space, or rather acquiring spells is another all-play space. And once you acquire them, they're activatable bonuses, one-time bonuses that can be pretty powerful, mm -hmm. uh, but obviously they're temporary. So each spell that you can acquire comes with a cost in mana crystals and a condition under which it can be used. So you could have a spell that allows you to place a one strength worker as though it were a five strength worker. Or you can have a spell that gives you an extra worker for the entire round. Or you can have a spell that gives you extra combat when fighting a dragon. So, mm -hmm. you know, pretty powerful, pretty flexible, and kind of just a good way to introduce a little bit more variety, as well as a few extra action spaces into the game. The expansion also adds a couple things. It adds an Atoma player that can be used in either a single-player game or a two-player game that uses the expansion. Yeah. And then it also adds a handful of, you know, uh, incorporating the mana crystal tiles into the mine deck, um, a new action space where you can just acquire mana crystals directly at the cost of possibly increasing the dragon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just generally all the things you would need to do to incorporate an expansion into the base game, and it's pretty nice. Yeah, they do a great job with it, uh, all in all. Yeah. On that note, actually, game overall feels pretty great. You know, you've got sort of an interesting flow, as we mentioned, with the, the bouncing of the workers. I think that's probably the biggest selling point for me on this particular game. I think it's a really well-integrated mechanic, and I think that it leads to lots of sort of like controlled chaos, yeah. I think is the way that yeah, I would yeah. describe it, where you're like, okay, how can I optimize my position so that here, and then I know that that person wants to go here later, so they'll bump me, and I can do a different thing. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, just all these, like, almost inception-like layers of, like, how deep do we go with these, yeah. <laughs> these bump cascades. So, yeah, a really solid mechanic there, and I think not just mechanically integrated, but flavor-wise, mm -hmm. you know, the dwarves with the longer beards, I think that's super clever. Oh, for sure. And I think that it really shines in a three to four player game mm -hmm. where you have like more dwarves out there. You're just like, you know, bumping all these different players. And you, in a two player game, a lot of times you'll be like, I don't want to bump. Greg. Exactly. Yeah. There's, like, there's, I feel like there's a much higher threshold mm -hmm. for bumping in a two player game. Whereas in a four player game, you're just like, screw it. Yeah. It'll, it'll happen that like, you know, there'll be between one person and like the, the next person in line, you'll have three other turns going in between them. Right. Because like one person bumps this, another person bumps this, and the third person bumps another one, uh, you know, at the best of times. And so like, it really is dynamic and it does a good job of making sure that each of the turns is complete. Like you, you do pretty much all that you want on a turn. Right. Like it does feel satisfying. It doesn't feel like you're ending a turn on a like... You know, wait, I could have just done 
Mm-hmm. No, you're you're going through, you're you're doing all these different things, and usually by the very end of it, you're like, oh, where can I put this one that was just bumped? There's only like two spaces left, right? Yeah, and one of them angers the dragon, and the other one makes me go later than I'm going right now. Right. Oof. Yeah. If you don't get a chance to do the thing you wanted to do, it's not because there weren't enough actions in the round. It's because someone else did it and their worker is more powerful than yours. Exactly. Exactly. They may have blocked you out by, you know, say putting a level four worker on the temple uh, to prevent anyone else from getting it. That or is bumping a pointed him. comment. And I take offense to that remark, but that does actually highlight an interesting strategy is that, you know, one way to do things is place your low workers with the expectation that they'll be bumped. But there's also some strategic advantage to taking one of your high, you know, either the highest tier or close to the highest tier workers and locking up a space because unless you use a spell no one can bump you if your highest tier worker is on a place because you can't bump equivalent only lower yeah so let's say you want to make damn sure that no one else claims any objectives bam round one you place your highest worker there you claim whichever objective you want it's an all play space so other people get to claim at least one round but then no one's going back there, so no one can actually build up any capacity over the course of the round to claim points. So there's definitely some strategery mm-hmm. um, on both sides of that coin where, you know, do you, I want extra actions or do I want to lock down a certain space? Exactly. And this really highlights one of the really great things about this game is that, especially for a worker placement game, there's a lot of player interaction. Oh, very much so. You're bumping each other. You're keeping an eye on the other players' boards and seeing like, oh, they can't fulfill any of the objectives. Or they, they're saving up the gems in order to fill this objective. So I'm going to go to the gem market and they're not going to get as much of a benefit there. Or Greg's mine is empty. I'm going to go mining mm-hmm. um, and things like that. So it really does have a lot of that where you're just trying to mess with the other players or you know jacob has no uh, axes so i'm going to try to anger the dragon because i've got three right right yeah it definitely it's a game that rewards like a holistic view of the board state as opposed to just putting your head down focusing on your own engine and trying to do that to the best of your ability and with that even it's, it's just like it's nice that it has a balance with that because you do have your own mind right nobody messes with your mind you are doing whatever you want in there and that's just yours. Mm-hmm. But you have like all these shared spaces that anyone can bump and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, definitely very well done there. With that all being said, all these awesome things about the game, no game is perfect. And this game does have a few pieces that we are not as jazzed about. And one of them is actually the dragons. Yeah. I mean, we are dragons demise, but... We don't like every single dragon, and these are a little bit poorly integrated, I think, totally into the game. They're very swingy. That, yeah. That's one of the big things about them. It's like, in terms of points, like an early game dragon is eight points, and that is a lot compared to like, any other action that you can really do, especially early game. And then they become nine points later on. But the biggest thing is that if you lose to any of them, you lose half of your gems or half of your money. And that's cost people a game mm-hmm. and by quite a bit, especially like with, with the money part at the very end, if someone like triggers a dragon on the last turn, you haven't been uh, collecting axes too much. You lose half your money. That's what you're betting on for the end of the game. You just got screwed. Right. And it sort of feels like, I mean, fully, I would say in the base game, like a third of the spaces 
yeah. have the possibility of advancing the dragon. And, you know, several of the king's favors require you to have X number of dragon tiles, I think scaling as high as like three, maybe four. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like the game really wants the dragons to be impactful. Yeah. But the combination of the fact that it's not a guaranteed advancement mm-hmm. on the track and the fact that it can actually be really, really hard to make sure that your capacity is high enough yeah. to fight off the dragon. Like getting axes is relatively uncommon and expensive if you don't get on one of the couple of spaces where you can do it sort of for free or for cheap. And so, you know, dragon doesn't come out as often, maybe two to three times per game, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not as often as I think it maybe could. And then when it does come out, there's not even a guarantee that anyone will be able to beat it, yeah. much less, you know, multiple people will be able to beat it and not get set back. So I think there's just a bit of a disconnect there between what it seems like they were aiming for versus what they ended up being. I think it's fine as a boost, yeah, uh, yeah. but I don't think you can have even a minor component of your strategy dependent on dragons because it's just too inconsistent. I mean, it's a die roll in the end, like, you know, unless you have a ton of axes, like... right. One of the like small nitpicky things that that was annoying me at least was how the all play actions treated player order, where it's just like it's not that it continues going around from the player who just did the action. It goes right back to the top. So if player number three activates the tunnel action, then they will take a tunnel, and then the person first in player order, second in player order, and then fourth in player order will take the tunnels. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just a little bit annoying because it's one of those things that I just, whenever I play, I have to remind everyone. It's not intuitive. I have to remind everyone to be like, all right, this person did it. Now it goes to the top and now this player will go, then this player go, then this player go. Where it's like you would normally expect it to be like, all right, this person went and then it goes to the next person, next, 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 around in a circle or around in whatever play order you're playing in. So... That's a little bit of a nitpick on my part. Right. No, I do. I, I think that's fair. I was prepared to kind of push back. But I think from a mechanic standpoint, I think it's fine because you can you can spend an action to adjust player yeah. order. And I think that's a sufficient reward mm-hmm. for doing so. But I do think that you have a point with the sort of it, it creates confusion among the players about, wait, OK, who's next? Especially when there's already so much confusion with the the bumps being thrown around and the player order being not static. And so possibly you're sort of going diagonally across the table. It's just one more thing that's like, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. And then the last thing for No Game is Perfect, sort of on the visual design standpoint, the game board is a little bit busy. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just a lot going on visually. Some of the action spaces get a little bit lost compared to some of the others. And they do a really good job of standardizing their symbology. Like Mm -hmm. anytime you see X symbol, it's always going to mean the same thing. But there's just a little bit too much going on on the board for me to... To like and i i don't have any sort of like visual processing issues but it seems like the type of thing that could be a problem for people who do and it's i think it could have just been slimmer yeah. like you know they could have just made it less the board could have been smaller which is already an issue given that you're going to have your own personal mine area mm-hmm. so just taking up less space i think would have been nice yep pretty much but uh you know the good the bad the I don't know. I mean, uh, the game is pretty pretty. So, you know, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, far be it from me to call yeah. dwarves ugly. That's just yeah. cultural relativism. But, yeah. Ratings. Quick, let's talk about our rating system. So, the core three of our rating system is buy it, play it, or skip it, which are pretty self explanatory. And then at the extremes, we have a top shelf game. If we feel that a game is above a buy it, it has to be owned. It's, it's primo. This belongs in everybody's collection. And then at the very, very bottom, 
is Burn It, games we believe never should have been made and are probably useful only as kindling. I'll start off. This is a game that I really like. I like the worker placement of it. I love the bumping mechanic. And it's one of the worker placement games that has the most player interaction Mm -hmm. in the most constructive way, I think. Where it's just like you're not like just blocking someone else from doing something. You're bumping someone else. That person then gets to do something else. And then that person can bump someone else. And there's a lot of like this feedback loop player interaction where, yeah, you're still trying to prevent other people from getting points, but it almost never feels like it's spiteful or unfriendly or anything like that. But it's still very competitive. So all that, plus like a lot of the fun designs and names of even like some of the uh, the tiles and that kind of stuff, they of course keep their nods to the other games like Dragon Brew in with the migrant gnome <laughs> dormitory and things like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So... All in all, for me, this is a buy it for sure. I really have enjoyed this game, and pretty much everyone that I've played it with has really enjoyed it. So I would highly recommend checking it out if you have the chance. There you go. I'm going to be a little bit more tempered. I do think this is a very, very fun game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just the the flavor of it and the chaos of it. I think the core bumping mechanic is really, really compelling and really, really well done. But there's just a little bit of some of the execution in terms of how the strategies work out Mm -hmm. um, that kind of means that there are other worker placement style games that I would probably prefer to play. That said, if somebody proposes Treasure Mountain, I'm probably going to be there. I think it's it's eminently playable, super fun, super entertaining, and it's uh, it gets a play it from me for sure. All right. Well, that's our review. So now let's talk a little bit about some of the games that are similar. So the first one that I'm going to talk about is Brewcrafters. Brewcrafters is also a worker placement game. And the similar things about it are that you have your own like area that you're building up that helps you build capacity for getting points for getting other things. In Brewcrafters, instead of competing for the favor and pretty much money and points, you're more competing for the resources that you want to get in order to get those points. But it still has some similar mechanics in terms of placing out the, the different workers, getting some improvements that will help your strategy, whether it's, you know, doing in Treasure Mountain all rubies or in Brewcrafters, I'm going for the quantity over quality kind of thing. So there's a lot of similarities when it comes to that. The game that I'm going to go with as being pretty similar is Puerto Rico. This is not technically a worker placement game. It's a role selection game, uh, but it hits a lot of the same notes in terms of sort of the all play spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, So in Puerto Rico, whenever you select a role, you get to perform that role slightly better, but everybody at the table gets to perform that role, period. So it hits a lot of the same notes in terms of shared actions, shared sort of goals, but also with a heavy preference on timing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if you are preparing your crops to ship out and someone takes the, I think it's like the captain action, before you're ready to do that, that can really completely throw off your cycle. Similarly, because it's not a worker placement and because there is no bumping, it's a little bit less forgiving. So it's, it's a weird situation where you have simultaneously more competition and less player interaction. Yeah. But fundamentally kind of, I think, around some of the same themes and same ideas about how you approach the strategy of the game and how you want to prioritize when you take your actions and how your engine really pays off. So 
Puerto Rico if you're looking for something that is a little bit more cutthroat and a little bit less forgiving, but uh, hits a lot of those same themes. And there you go. That's our review of Treasure Mountain by August Games. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope that you enjoyed it. As always, we are doing a lot of stuff on our YouTube, on our Twitch, on just about everywhere that you can find us. So be sure to check out our streams. We're starting up Rise of Fenris this week, actually. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And we have some videos coming out on our YouTube channel about five things that we like about board games. This week goes Irish Gage and one thing we don't. So definitely go check those out. Also, big thanks to our Patreon supporters, Hunter, Casey, Carissa, and Sam. Thank you so much. And of course, Holly, thank you very much for joining our Patreon. Woo! We appreciate all the support that we get from you guys. It helps us just stay on air. And lastly, be sure to join us next week for another episode of Dragon's Demise.